0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao. And this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where I speak with creative entrepreneurs, artists, and other insanely interesting people to hear their stories, learn about their molding moments, tipping points, and spectacular takeoffs. Mike, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
2: Hey, Trini. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. So you know, I, I came across you by way of, of one of our listeners, and uh, I absolutely was totally intrigued by your story. Uh, so tell us a, a bit about yourself, your, your background, and, and sort of the journey before the journey that people know you for today. Yeah.
2: yeah, well, you know, like most people, especially a lot of the wonderful people you have here on your show, I've had quite an interesting sort of twist and turn and windy road, if you will, but, uh, but my journey really started uh, with baseball. So I played baseball all growing up from the time, you know, I started T-ball when I was seven years old and decided very early on I wanted to play in the major leagues. That was my passion. That was my thing. And I was actually pretty good and, you know, played through high school and actually got drafted right out of high school by the New York Yankees. Um, I didn't end up signing a contract with the Yankees at that time because I got an opportunity to play baseball at Stanford. And if I'd signed with the Yankees right out of high school, then I could have still gone to Stanford and, you know, to go to school, but I couldn't have played there. So I go to Stanford, play baseball there and get drafted out of Stanford by the Kansas city Royals and uh, sign my pro contract. And the way it works in baseball, you get drafted by a major league team. You still have to go into the minor leagues. There's a bunch of different levels and you kind of got to work your way up. And I was Left-handed pitcher, doing pretty well in the minor leagues, working my way up. And uh, unfortunately, my third season in the minors, um, I went out to pitch one night and I threw one pitch and I tore ligaments in my elbow, and I blew my arm out. So at 23 years old, after starting baseball at seven, my career ended. You know, I I didn't know that the my career was over when I got hurt. I was playing on the East Coast. Uh, at that time I knew the season was over cause I hurt myself pretty bad. And they sent me back to California where I grew up and still live now. And I ended up having an operation on my arm that summer. I had actually three operations over the next two years. And, uh, unfortunately when all the surgeries were done and everything, I was almost 25 years old at that point. Um, I wasn't able to come back and keep playing. So baseball ended and I had to, uh, figure out what to do with the rest of my life, which, you know, I mean, I had gone to Stanford and I'd gotten a, degree and all that. And I'd always thought I got to have a plan B, but I had, I really had no plan B. So I didn't know what the hell I was going to do, <laughs> quite frankly. And, um, you know, I was pretty devastated by the experience cause it had been, you know, big, huge piece of my life, obviously. Um, but it actually ended up being as often is the case when something really difficult and tragic happens, it actually was a huge catalyst for me. I didn't know it at the time, um, you know, I went into the dot com world. It was the late 90s, and I got a job working for a startup in San Francisco. And it was based in New York, but the office I was working for was in San Francisco. And did some online ad sales for about a year and a half, and then went to another startup and was going to, you know, get rich like everybody else because the company I went to work for was supposed to go public, but then the dot com bubble burst and I lost my job. And so I was, you know, in the middle of 2000, I was 26, I guess, going on 27. And, um, Someone asked me, a mentor of mine asked me, what do you really want to do? And, you know, if, if money weren't an issue, what would you do? And I said, well, what I'd do if I could do anything, really, is I would write and I would speak and I would try to inspire people. And I don't, you know, and he's like, well, that's, you seem really, and I was passionate. I was excited. One of my secret fantasies really had been if I had made it to the big leagues and, you know, the baseball thing was fun to me and I was excited about it. But I hoped that by being an athlete, maybe I could use that platform to make a difference and to inspire, you know, kids. And I don't know who I just wanted to, I wanted to be out there in the world trying to help people, if you will. Um, and so I told this mentor of mine that and he said, well, great, why don't you go do that now? And I said, well, because, you know, I'm 26 years old and I don't know how you start doing that. And how, how do you get anyone to pay you to do that? Like, that seems crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, yeah, you could wait till you think you figured it out or think you have some experience to talk about or whatever. You could just do it now. And so that's what actually got me, you know, it wasn't like that instant, but over the next six months, I ended up meeting my now wife uh, around that same time that fall. And she really encouraged me. And I started my business as a speaker and a coach and hope, hoping to one day be able to write and, you know, publish a book or maybe more than one book. But that's at the beginning of 2001. I decided I was going to start this business and see if I could actually get it off the ground. And You know, 13 and a half years later, as I seriously but jokingly say to people, I figured I'd give myself a year and if I couldn't make it work, I'd go get a job. And I haven't had to go get a job over the last 13 and a half years because I've been able to write a few books and travel around the country and speak about, uh, you know, some things that I think are important. So that's kind of how I ended up. Here, if you will, and, and having this conversation with you mm-hmm. so you know I, I want to take a few steps back actually to the
0: very beginning of this um, yeah. you, know, you played baseball from the time you were seven and you got drafted by the Yankees out of high school. Yes. Yes. One of the things I want to talk about is is sort of really, really big goals because i mean that's that 's not a small accomplishment that 's a big mm-hmm. accomplishment, the kinds yes. of things that I think are out of the the sort of ream of reality for most people. Like, I would never think, okay, I've got the potential inside of me to one day get drafted by the Yankees. I mean, I'm Indian. (laughs) I'm not genetically predisposed for anything athletic. But um, what I'm really curious about is is sort of um, two things around this. Sort of the mindset um, that you approach something like that with and, and how you cultivated it at such an early age to think, okay, I've got it in me to, to play for the Yankees someday or become a professional baseball player. Right. And, and then of course, you know, lessons from the field that you've brought with you into life and into the
2: world. Well, I mean, those are two great questions. I think, you know, I don't really know where that came from, quite frankly. I mean, I grew up, my parents split up when I was three. Um, and my dad, you know, so I was raised by a single mom. I have an older sister. And, you know, we definitely, we had some challenges. I mean, from the age of three to seven, you know, we did, I did the kind of every other weekend with my dad. And my dad was in radio and television, actually really creative, very charismatic, talented guy. But he had bipolar disorder. So he struggled significantly with his own demons. I didn't know what that meant as a kid. But by the time I turned seven, he actually ended up in a serious depression, lost his job. And that went on for like five or six years. He was in and out of halfway houses and, and right around that time, so around seven years old, when my dad gets really sick, you know, baseball was this thing I liked and was starting to play, but I was really good at. It. And I kind of knew that right away and I got a lot of feedback. So I think that part of it on a psychological level for me mm-hmm. was this is something that I could be good at. This is something that I could get attention for. And in a lot of ways it saved me from some of the pain that I didn't know how to deal with as a kid and what was going on in my family. Um, and, and once I, you know, kind of got into it and saw I was good, my, my personality is such that I just kind of like to, you know, as, as my, my wife often says, you don't do things halfway, you know, it's like, so I remember literally being like seven, almost eight years old and asking my mother, mom, what's the best college in the country? I don't know why I asked her, but she said, well, Harvard would be the best school. My mom's from the East Coast, and she's right, Harvard's Ivy League school. And I said, great, I'm going to go to Harvard, and I'm going to play baseball. And that was kind of this, I made up this goal at, at you know, seven, almost eight years old. And I remember then being on the schoolyard telling kids, I'm going to go to Harvard and play baseball. And some kid says to me, well, Harvard doesn't have a very good baseball team. Really? What? And I'm, uh, I'm upset, so I go back home, and I say to my mom, Mom, some kid told me Harvard's baseball team isn't that good. And she said, well, yeah, that's probably true. I don't know. The Ivy League's not really known for its sports. And I said, well, what's the best school in the country that has a good baseball team? And she said, well, probably Stanford. It's not that far. It's about an hour from here where we live. I grew up in Oakland. And I said, okay, then I'm going to go to Stanford. I'm going to play baseball. And and again, I mean, I remember vividly having that thought. I'm not sure exactly where that came from. But it just became this thing that, like, that's what I want to do. And it was this, like, if I'm going to do it, I might as well try to do it as big and as successful as possible. Um, Now, the thing is, I would say about that, though, I think that there's some potentially dangerous aspects of that, if you will, Mm -hmm. because I've seen it in my own life and I also see it in our culture as a whole now, especially that this idea that it's all about, you know, the sort of brass ring and the, the cream of the crop and we have to, you know, and look, you've probably experienced this. I know I have almost everyone listening. We have a big goal, whatever it is, we go for it, even if we achieve it sometimes, it's disappointing because it never fulfills us in the way that we think, and oftentimes we don't, mm-hmm. and then we feel like losers because we weren't able to make it to whatever we think we're supposed to. So, I mean, there's a lot of psychology, I think, for me personally underneath that, and some of it I think can be really positive in our desire to think big, but I also think there's some really dark sides to it as well that we've got to be careful about. Well, you know, I I do actually want
0: to spend some time talking about the dark sides of it, and I think that's what we'll we'll spend the rest of our conversation (laughs) talking about, given the subject matter of your book. Uh, You know, there's another thing that I think is really interesting here. uh, When when you tell me your story, is is this idea of injury and how it, it basically you know put an end to your career at a fairly early age, and you know, one of the things that I, you know, I, I see with people here often is that some sort of loss seems to be a pretty common part of the story of almost anybody who's been on this show or some sort of yeah. really just traumatic event. And I think that, you know, for somebody like you, I can't imagine that didn't create this huge sort of loss of identity because it's something yeah. that's just, I mean, it, it kind of defined who you are for such a long time. So I'm curious. In those situations, I mean, first, let's talk about how you overcome that sort of a loss of identity um, yeah. when something has been such a significant part of your life. I mean, from age 7 to 23, that's that's substantial.
2: Yeah. Well, I, you know, and by the time I finally retired and was done, I mean, I was almost 25. So, you know, for the first – for 18 of the first 25 years of my life, that was a huge piece of not only what I did, but as I got good. And I was good kind of right away. So I was like Mike, the baseball player. Um, and you know, it's interesting on the one hand, on this sort of superficial level, not even so superficial, it was devastating. It was devastating to my identity. It was devastating to my ego. It was like, oh my gosh, who am I without this? But there was a piece of it underneath that I don't know that I fully appreciated at the time. And now, you know, 15 years later at the age of 40, I can look back and say, oh, it was actually kind of liberating too, because I had been so defined by that. Um, but I think, I think what happens to us and look, and this is, emblematic all throughout our culture is that we get defined by the things that we do. And if we're really good at something, it can sort of be a blessing and a curse because then it becomes, oh... He's really good at this. She's really good at that. And something like sports or something like, you know, in certain aspects of the arts, and you know this as a creative person and all the different creative people that you talk to, if it's something that's glorified by our culture, like, are you kidding? There's nothing more American than baseball, right? I mean, I was going to go be a baseball star, right? And go play for the Yankees or whatever. It was like a lot of projection that came onto me. Again, I wasn't fully aware of it, but as a kid who was insecure and sensitive And going through a lot of what I had gone through, you know, growing up with my family situation, I mean, this was, for me, it was more than just about baseball. It was like, I wanted to be somebody and I wanted people to like me and approve of me, which I think, you know, most of us do to some degree. So it wasn't simply just the loss of my identity. It was like, oh no, this is the one thing that made me special and made people pay attention to me, Mm -hmm. you know? But I think though, there's a story that I share in the book, you know, and, and, That actually happened when I was in college, before I ended up with my career over, and it was enlightening for me at that time, because my freshman year at Stanford, I actually didn't play. I I had a minor injury to my arm before the major one happened a few years later, and I missed the whole season. Um, and at the end of the year, so that, and it was very difficult for me and I wasn't sure if I was going to get to play again. And so I was having a big identity crisis at that time because my future was uncertain as it related to baseball. But I got in a really serious accident at the end of that year that I ended up in the hospital. I broke my back, I broke my pelvis, I broke my wrist and it was pretty scary. Um, but as I was in the hospital, a bunch of my classmates, you know, kids from my dorm and other kids from school were coming to visit me. And there was this outpouring of love and appreciation and concern for me. And I was really touched by it even in the midst of feeling really scared about the accident and everything that happened as well as, you know, what was going to happen. How would I recover from the accident? Would I be able to play baseball again with my arm and the whole bit? But I remember thinking at 19, I was like, wow, you know, most of these kids that I knew from Stanford had never seen me play baseball because I hadn't played that whole freshman year. Mm -hmm. But they seemed to like me anyway. And that was like an inkling of what I was then able to get more in spades, if you will, when my career finally ended. That, you know what? I don't want to live my life with all this pressure that I put on myself that I have to perform in order for people to like me and approve of me. And that's quite frankly, shrini that's... A, a, a journey that I continue to be on at this stage in my life, but it continues to get better. Mm-hmm. But I think part of that, yes, it was hard to lose that piece of my identity, but ultimately, and back, I think, even to the preface of your question, I think it forced me to look more deeply within myself when a lot of very successful and creative and interesting people in the world have gone through some serious pain and difficulty because I think it forces us to look at ourselves and look at life in a different way. Mm-hmm.
0: So let me ask you this. I'm going to ask you a question that I've asked a lot of people about pain and difficulty. And, yep. uh, you know, it's, it's something that I always – I've asked this probably a dozen times in interviews only because I'm so curious about it. Yeah, for you, this became a catalyst, right? Yes. And uh, Sean Acor talks about this. He said some people experience post-traumatic growth and other people experience post-traumatic stress. I'm curious, you know, as somebody who has experienced
2: post-traumatic growth, what is it that differentiates those two people? That's a great question. I think um, I think it's really intention. And I also think it's, uh, you know, there's a part of it that's, for me at least, self-preservation. I mean, here's what I saw or what I sensed, even as young as I was. I saw myself at like 55 or 60 years old sitting at the end of a bar, drunk, miserable, talking about how I could have been somebody. I used to be so great. You know, I mean, I saw that, and it scared me. I, I, I thought about my father, who, although wasn't an athlete, spent a lot of his Life. My dad died at the age of 68 when I was 27 years old. And my dad was this really creative, really talented, charismatic guy who just couldn't get out of his own way. And I remember thinking to myself, I was upset. I was disappointed. I was heartbroken in many ways. But I'm like, you know what? I'm not giving my life away to this. This sucks. This isn't what I wanted. This doesn't seem fair. I don't understand it. But I just, it was, it was kind of like a choice on my part. And it wasn't that it wasn't hard and painful. And at times it was, and look, it's not like even in my life right now at 40 years old, I will every now and again, not that often anymore. I'll have a dream that I'm still playing baseball and it'll be so vivid and so intense. And I'll wake up in the morning with this mixed of emotion, kind of like, Oh, that was a trip. Or like, I'll get so excited in the dream, like, oh, I got a chance to go play again. Like, it's still in there somewhere that's still right. So, you know, it's not a black and white thing. And I think it's like dealing with the loss of any kind. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's either all bad or all good. I think we choose what we're going to take from it. And I think my orientation in the world has always been to some degree, and I'm not exactly sure where I even got this, is that I can not only handle what comes my way but I can figure out how to turn it into something more positive. And it's now become more of a practice and something that I try to teach other people. Mm -hmm. But I think the difference has a lot to do with, again, our own internal conversation about ourselves and how we ultimately relate to ourselves and the things that happen. Um, So it's not that I didn't have any PTSD from having that experience or from some other things that have happened in my life that have been traumatic. But I think that if we make a commitment to I'm going to choose to have this be something that ultimately benefits me. I think that's the, the biggest differentiator.
0: Okay. Awesome. So I think this makes a perfect setup to really get into the meat of what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. Uh, you know, you mentioned a couple of things you you talked about sort of having the intention to get something good from this. And, you know, my friend Meg Warden even talks about this when she, she said, you know, at her time in prison, she set the intention that something good would come from it. And now she's just this incredible person, uh, who, who really just brings a light to to the world. Mm -hmm. And so you've talked about intention, you talked about cultivating a practice, and then, of course, you know, sort of our own internal stories. Uh, yep. So there's a lot of stuff here to to really dig apart. Um, let's let's start with sort of changing the internal narratives, uh, so that we can set an intention and then develop a practice, and then we'll kind of tie that into the whole concept of self compassion.
2: Hmm. Well, I yeah, I mean, it gives a lot in what you just said and, <laughs> and what what you're alluding to, but I think look. I mean, my my belief is this, and and this is why I wrote this new book, Nothing Changes Until You Do, is that I think most of the things that we do in life, Serena, are relatively easy. It's dealing with ourselves that's the hard part. Mm -hmm. And this was true for me as an athlete. All those years, I'd go out to the pitcher's mound. Look, baseball is a hard enough game. There's a lot of skill involved. There's a lot of failure involved. But the hardest part of that game was not just standing on the mound dealing with myself when I was pitching. It was in between innings. It was after the game. It was all of the mental gymnastics and all of the beating up upon myself that I would do when I would fail. I think the same is true. You know, I just got done writing this book. This is my third book. I had a huge breakthrough in the middle of writing this book. Because the first two times I wrote books, first book, Focus on the Good Stuff, was all about appreciation. Second book, Be Yourself, Everyone Else is Already Taken, all about authenticity. Those were really, really hard for me to write and quite miserable experiences, quite frankly. I love the books. I did not like writing the books because I'm more of a speaker than I am a writer. Mm-hmm. That was kind of my story. And I kept saying, I, and I took five years in between book two and book three, a lot of life things happened, a lot of stuff going on. But the main thing was like, I was scared to go write another book because I'd had such a traumatic experience, quite frankly, with the first two times. But in the middle of writing this third book, I realized this is really easy. What's hard is dealing with myself and all of my own fear and insecurity and self judgment and constantly being in my head about is this good? Is that good? Should I write this? Should I not write this? What are people going to think? All that nonsense. Look, the creative process, as you know, and talk to all kinds of fascinating people about. So, back to your question about intention and creating a practice, I think one of the most important things for us to do in our creative endeavors and our relationships, anything that we do, is figure out how do we cultivate for ourselves a practice that's not perfect that's not about getting us to some destination but really does allow us to be kinder and gentler towards ourselves in an authentic way so that whatever we engage in doing whatever we're trying to create we can do it from that perspective because it makes us more open more conducive to creativity, and it just makes whatever we're trying to accomplish that much easier. And then regardless of whatever practice, regardless of whatever skill or, or talent that we may have, look, if we come at it from a really self-critical perspective, not only is it not fun, it's damn near impossible to really do with any sense of fulfillment.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So, Let's talk about this in a bit more depth, as you can imagine, I'm about done. <laughs> You've probably figured that out by now. Yes. Yes. Uh so you know, I'd like to hear more about these ideas through the lens of some of your own stories in the last thirteen years post baseball. Yeah. Uh, because you're right. I mean, I think we're all incredibly self critical when something bad happens, when we we tend to blame ourselves, you know, when something good happens, we're like, Oh, that was just dumb luck. Uh yeah. and I think that making that shift to to getting to this place of of you know self compassion, uh, it's it's almost easier said than done because you know as we were talking about earlier, we live in sort of a brass ring accomplishment driven culture yes. in which everybody's you know highlights are on display in a way that they've never been before. Yes, And so I'm really curious, kind of one through the lens of some of your own stories, where you've had to bring this practice of self-compassion in, and really, how do we put it into use in our lives on a day-to-day basis? I mean, that's really the gist of, I mean, how do we get, how do we make that shift from self-blame to self-compassion?
2: Well, I think part of it is, is understanding a little bit, as simple of a concept as it is, I think understanding self-compassion at a deeper level, because self-compassion, by the way, isn't self-esteem. And they're similar but different. Self-esteem is about sort of a global assessment of our relative worth and value. And the tricky part about self-esteem, while it's important, and look, the higher our self-esteem, the better we're going to feel about ourselves, the more confidence that we have. However, in in today's world, where it can get dangerous is that we're constantly comparing and we're constantly focused on external feedback. We're constantly focused on accomplishment. How do I stack up to someone else? And that's why self-esteem can be tricky if we just go down that path. Self-compassion is about how do we relate to ourselves in the moment? Can we actually give ourselves that sense of kindness, that sense of compassion towards ourselves, which for many of us, as simple of a concept as it is, it's not easy to do at all. As, as my friend Robert Holden likes to say, there's no amount of self-improvement that can make up for a lack of self-acceptance. So we often even go at our own personal growth, our own self-improvement, which it can be a really positive thing from the perspective of like something's wrong with us, Uh right? And I think, you know, I I remember a few years ago, a lot of times the way my own process works and a lot of what I blog about or a lot of what I write about in my books or a lot of what I try to share when I'm speaking to groups of people is kind of the places where I bump my, you know, my head into the wall, if you will, or realize something, even something subtle. But I was, I was at an event with Louise Hay, who happens to be the founder of Hay House, who's the publisher of my new book. And um, she's been in, you know, sort of the new thought, sort of personal growth world for many, many years, written a bunch of books. Her most famous is probably called You Can Heal Your Life, which is all about sort of kind of metaphysical connections between our bodies and, you know, what shows up in our belief systems. Fascinating stuff. But I was at this event. Louise was there. First time I ever got a chance to meet her. And she said this thing to me. It, the event was in San Francisco. It was ending on a Sunday. It had been a weekend event. And I'm talking to her and I said, Louise, are you flying home tonight? And she lives in San Diego. And she says, oh, no, no, Mike. And I said, why not? And she said, well, I would never do that to myself. And I said, and it was just the simple comment, but I took a step back. Now, San Francisco and San Diego, it's about an hour, 20-minute flight. It's not that long, right? Mm -hmm. The event was ending at like 6 o'clock. And then she went on to talk about how important self-care is. And granted, Louise is now in her late 80s and very different place in life. But it actually had me stop. And I realized... I've been priding myself on how much I can get done, how fast I can do things, how quick a turnaround. You know, I can jump on an airplane and fly here and speak and then fly home. And, and it had me actually stop and pause and go, wait a minute, just because I can doesn't necessarily mean that I should. Mm-hmm. And this was a few years back, and it actually has been a real shift in perspective for me. Over these last number of years, especially in the last couple, and I've got my wife and I have two girls who are eight and five. I got a really busy life and a lot going on. I'm on the road speaking quite a bit. I got all this stuff going on, but really coming back to how do I genuinely take care of myself and do it from a place of compassion, even and especially when I find myself pushing too hard or doing things that I say I don't want to do anymore. And I think one of the biggest dangers that we run into these days with all the technology and everything that we've got at our disposal is that, you know, how do we actually create some boundary, if you will, or some, you know break from it all, if you will, and do it in a way that actually serves us, not from a place of guilt and shame. I mean, we often do this with eating and with exercise and with, well, I should, I should, I should, and that we should all over ourselves. And then we end up stressed out whether we do or we don't. So a lot of my own self-compassion practice has been coming up with practices that I think are going to serve me in my life and in my work. And at the same time, holding myself accountable to them, yes, but then also having compassion for myself when I fail.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that, I think, is one of the hardest ones for many of us who are committed to the work that we do, are committed to excellence. How do we treat ourselves when we fail, when we mess up, when we don't live up to the standard we've set for ourselves?
1: Mm-hmm. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
0: So I want to talk about that in a bit more detail, but I want to go back to to something else that you said. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that you know most of us start this journey of self help with mm-hmm. this frame that something is wrong with us. Yes, openly admit that that has definitely <laughs> been the default way in which all my self improvement efforts have started. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I don't think that's I don't think I'm alone in that. I think no. that's the overwhelming majority of people. Yep. And I'm curious how we shift that so that these you know improvements don't turn into a trying to affirm our way or you know psycho new age bullshit of like burning candles <laughs> to try and make changes that are never going to happen through this mindset of something is wrong with us
2: well i think look you're not alone cuz that's what motivated me and at times still does motivate me to make changes that I want to. But I think the distinction, look, whether it's self-improvement, self-help of any kind, there's a distinction between fixing and changing. So fixing, right? When we come at ourselves or our life or anything from the perspective of, I got to fix it, that means it's inherently broken. There's something wrong. Now, look, if something actually breaks, like you break your leg, go to the doctor, get it fixed, right? The window breaks in your house, get it fixed. There are times in life when, even things with ourselves, like this is broken, my computer is broken, I got to get it fixed. When we're dealing with ourselves, and it's not just semantics, but there's a whole different paradigm of fixing versus changing. Changing is really about wanting something new, wanting something different, wanting to enhance something, wanting to expand or deepen something within ourselves. And so if we start to think about, well, why am I reading this book? Why am I trying to learn this? Why am I trying to improve this thing? Even like, think about couples. We go to therapy. We go to sit down with someone. There's something wrong with the relationship. If that's the context it's going to be difficult to find real healthy ways to change. So we got to shift the paradigm more from a place of change. You know, my counselor, who I write quite a bit about in Nothing Changes Until You Do, is named Eleanor. And Eleanor and I have been working together for about two and a half years, and she has been just like a godsend for me. And I've had a lot of therapy over the years. I've worked with lots of coaches and counselors and all kinds of therapists, you name it. I mean, I'm a big advocate in getting people outside of ourselves to give us feedback and guide us and teach us. And even though we may know a lot, it's always helpful to have someone or, or you know, multiple people outside of ourselves that we trust. But Eleanor said this great thing to me recently that I wrote about in the book because she says it all the time, but the first time she said it, it just like kind of blew my mind. She said, look, here's how the change process works with anything there's four steps to it. Recognize, acknowledge, forgive, and change. She said, recognize what you're doing. Recognize whatever it is that's not working, that's not filling you, that you're not happy with, right? Recognize it. Take ownership for it. Then acknowledge. So recognize, right? Acknowledge the impact. What's the impact? Don't blame other people, right? That's the recognize piece. Take ownership. Recognize, acknowledge. What's the impact? How is it negatively impacting? You really feel that. Really take... You know, take that in, take responsibility for that. Then forgive, forgive yourself for whatever it is that has continued to have, you. right? Bring some sense of compassion, bring that sense of forgiveness. And then she actually said, if you do those three things, if you genuinely and authentically recognize, acknowledge, and then forgive, the change will actually happen very organically, very naturally. You don't have to force it. She said, but what you do, Mike, and she said, lots of people do this as well, is you recognize, acknowledge, punish, and repeat, (laughs) And then the cycle continues, right? And that's what happens as we start on our growth path. We're aware enough to, oh, I'm doing this. Oh, I don't want to do that. Okay, yeah, there's a negative impact on me or other people are telling me this is really irritating them. They don't like it. And then we get really hard on ourselves. You idiot, you stupid, what's wrong? You did all that negative self-talk. And then, okay, I'm going to punish myself somehow thinking that's actually taking responsibility, which it's not. Then we end up repeating the cycle and then we have more fodder for the ego to say, see, you're an idiot, you're a loser, you did it again, right? This is why we keep repeating patterns in business or we keep repeating patterns in relationships and we can't quite figure out what the deal is. But part of it is we got to be able to bring that sense of forgiveness, that sense of compassion. You know, I went up to Calistoga, which is a town up in Napa, about an hour from where I live in the Bay area. This was at the end of 2011. And the year had been a very, very intense year we'd gone through we lost our house we ended up doing a short sale on our house cuz we got so far underwater on the house that that was the way we what we needed to do to get out and we felt good about the process of doing it but it'd been very very difficult and stressful in addition to that and way more stressful and painful than that my mother had passed away mm-hmm. so 2011 had been a really really painful year but even with the pain of it it felt like this huge shift had happened in my life i could feel it internally And I felt like myself and my wife, Michelle, we were starting to move in a a more healthy, more positive direction with a lot of things that were important to us. Even though I was still grieving the loss of my mother and still dealing with some of the ego and, and other stuff related to the house situation, I go up to Calistoga and I spent the whole three days while I was up there writing in my journal and being in meditation and just being silent, I went up by myself as I do sometimes, and it was all around forgiveness. Could I forgive myself for mistakes that I'd made, for things that I wish that had gone differently? And I just, and I didn't even know exactly how to do it. I had this audio that it was literally cassette tapes that I'd gotten in the 90s that I'd never listened to, that I still had my old Walkman. And for some reason, intuitively, I picked those up as I was leaving. I brought my little Walkman, my little cassette tapes, and I was listening to this audio program on, on forgiveness, self forgiveness. Particular, and I literally wrote down everything that I was upset with myself about, and it was holding against myself, and kept asking myself the question over the course of these three days in Calistoga Can I forgive myself? Can I forgive myself? Can I forgive myself? And what was amazing, it wasn't like some moment where all of a sudden everything changed, but just that process of doing that, I came home and I felt different. And the beginning of 2012, some really significant things in my life and my business started to shift. And as I looked back over the course of that year of 2012, I actually think that a big catalyst for some of those big changes that occurred was actually that process of self-forgiveness. So a
0: um, couple of things around this. I mean, you mentioned 2011, like losing the house, losing a mother. Yep. <sighs> you know, I think it takes us back to this whole idea. You know, that's, that's a lot of pain all at once. It is. And I mean, just speaking through personal experience of having, you know, more pain than I could handle all at once and, and letting it kind of demolish me. Yep. You said that you could recognize that it was the start of a shift. And I realize that often it really is the start of a shift for for most people, uh, even though we can't see it. And I am wondering how we navigate that time,
2: uh, without letting it sort of destroy us? Well, I think, you know, as Michael Beckwith likes to say, and I totally agree with him, don't waste a good crisis. Like when you're in the the midst of something really painful, trust that at some level, it was like what you mentioned your friend who was in prison said, trust that there's something good that's going to come from this, even if you can't see it, even if you don't know what it is. So you've got to have a certain amount of faith and trust. And trust, this is something else Eleanor's taught me that I think is really important. Trust is honestly expecting a positive outcome, not the positive outcome, not I'm going to control it and it better go this way or I'm going to be pissed, but like honestly expecting a positive outcome. And in the face of pain, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of difficulty, we can't see that. We don't know what that positive outcome may be. And if, if, anyone listening is anything like me, my natural orientation, even though it may sound like I'm this optimist and my natural orientation right in the moment is to assume something terrible is going to happen. It's like in my DNA, part of how I was raised, part of how I'm wired up is that I naturally will go to the catastrophic worst-case scenario. I've had to literally train myself not to do that because I know that that's not going to serve me. And so I think another thing that's really important is we got to have support outside of ourselves. I mean, without my friends that I really trust, I mean, like my inner circle friends, like the men in my men's group, like my wife, like the people that I can call the proverbial 3 o'clock in the morning phone call, those people on the short list of who we can bear our souls to, as well as professionals, you know, again, be them therapists or coaches or whatever. Like I'm constantly and have been throughout the course of my life, which is part of what's helped me get through a lot of these difficult things, reaching out for support. And that's one of the pieces, look, there's a chapter in nothing changes until you do, where It's just called ask for help. You know, one of my favorite questions for me to ask a group of people as I travel around the country and speak to different groups at conferences or inside of organizations or all the different places that I speak, I love asking this question. I say, how many of you like helping other people, right? Who likes to help other people? Almost every room I'm in, it doesn't matter where I am in the world, everyone raises their hand, right? Because who doesn't like to help people? Now, some of us are busier than others and some of us are more selfless than others, clearly. But, like, it's a natural human inclination to want to help people. Then I ask a second question. I say, how many of you love asking other people for help? On average, at most, about 10% of the hands will go up. And I often say, I say, for those of you who just raised your hand, be very proud of yourself and help teach the rest of us how to do that more genuinely, more generously. Because the thing is, when we're unwilling to ask for help, which many of us are, because we feel funny, it feels vulnerable, it feels weak, what if they say no? All the reasons that we don't ask for help. Not only do we not get the help that we need, But it's actually, in a weird way, quite selfish not to ask for help because there's a whole world of people around you that would love to help you if you would just ask them. And this could be whether we're working on a creative project, whether we're in the midst of a breakup, whether we're really scared about something, whatever it is. Maybe we're doing really well and we just need some help how to take it to the next level, but we need help. All of us need help. And so if we can get over our ego and our resistance, that's one of the most important things. Look, I would not have made it through some of the things I've made it through in my life. Without the support of the people around me, and I'm incredibly grateful to those people and to the people I know, the ones who are in my life currently and the ones I assume will show up in the future of my life when I really need help and and as a way and it's never going to be a tit for tat thing. like we can't always pay people back directly for the help and they're, if, if they give us authentic help, they're not really even looking for that. but what we can do is also open ourselves up. To being available to help and support the people around us when they need it and then it becomes a virtuous cycle
1: mm-hmm.
0: so you know one of the things other things you brought up a handful of times is ego uh, mm-hmm. which i think honestly to me is is the, often our downfall in many of these situations um, yeah. and one of the things that really i think ego may be one of the greatest sources of our pain Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you experience pain, I am realizing more and more as I've thought about it is that the, what what really is causing it is that the ego is getting just destroyed.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. And you know, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. You no, know, no. I would say another great quote from Michael Beckwith, who's the founder of the Agape International Spiritual Center down in L.A., who I just adore. He said, remember that a bad day for the ego is a good day for the soul. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's actually one of the other chapters in Nothing Changes Until You Do. And I think that that's exactly what's happening is our ego's taking a hit you know when we when painful things happen it's so often the ego that's the problem it's not really us mm-hmm. you know and if we can distinguish between our ego and who we really are and realize that again when something happens that is painful when some rejection happens look and this is so true again and you would know this as well or better than i do given all the creative people that you talk to look the hardest part of the creative process in anything we're attempting to create and put out there in the world is the fear of the rejection and what's really at risk when we get rejected. It's our ego. You know, one of the, one of my favorite Ted talks is by Elizabeth Gilbert, right? Who wrote, Eat, pray love on mm-hmm. creativity. I, I don't know if you've seen it or, you know, yes. Yeah, and, and I watched that Ted talk. I'm not kidding. Like at least a dozen times when I was writing this most recent book. Because she talks a lot about the creative process and she talks a lot about, you know, that differentiation between sort of our gift, our talent, our genius, and that we get so attached to it. But really what I took from her TED talk was that it is about something. It's like this energy that lives outside of us that we have access to and we can let it flow through us. That's what a lot of what creativity is. We get so attached to it like our identity. And and the thing about it is that once we create something, whatever it is, however big or small it is, once we give birth to it, our job, I think, is to actually let it go. Put it out there in the world. Yes, we're passionate about it, but trust that, like, it's got a life of its own. You know, I've been playing around with this with this new book for me because... I got my ego so attached to my first two books in a way that I could see now, especially looking back, wasn't healthy. And I love this new book that I wrote. I love all three of my books. I'm really proud of them. I'm grateful that I had the courage to do what I needed to do to put them out there in the world. And get, It was something, I mean, if you told me 10 years ago I'd write three books and they'd be out in the world, I would say, you're nuts. Like, I don't even know, how, I don't even know where that would come from. I had that as a goal. But, but one of the things I've been practicing is just really trying to let go and not have this book be about me, Mm -hmm. even though ironically, this book, I wrote more about myself than, (laughs) than anything. You know, my friend, Melanie, who actually is the one who listens to your podcast religiously and loves it and was the one who recommended it. She actually helped me and edited a lot of this book. And I kept asking her, Melanie, am I like, is this too self-absorbed? Am I talking about myself too much? It just feels like so, you know, because it was a lot of stories that are just all about me, but I was trying to make more universal points. And she kept coming back and saying, no, the more personal you get, the more universal it is, the more relevant it is. And she was so right. But I'm sharing all this because I realized that, look, this book as an example, and anything that we put out in the world, yes, it's a representation of us, but it's not who we are. And so if people like it, and say nice things about it, wonderful. If it resonates with them, fantastic. You know, just today, literally, I was looking online, and there was a couple of negative reviews about my book. Uh-huh. And I had a moment when I first started to read them when I was like, oh. And I had that familiar feeling. And like, oh, and, I, and like instinctively, here's what I wanted to do. I literally wanted to email like five or six people that I know really went. and say, could you go on to Amazon and write something really positive? Because someone just wrote something really negative. Uh-huh. Like, I had that instinct, right? And then I, I took a breath. And I actually said to myself, literally, like, thank these people for saying what they say and allow this to be a practice for you not to get attached. Like they can say whatever they want to say. It's they're entitled to that. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't have to take that on. They get to have their opinion. They get to speak their opinion any way they want. And if they think that about my book, more power to them for putting that out on the internet. Right. It's a free world. People can say what they want. You know, this, right? You're in, <laughs> in this world that people get to say whatever they want to say. Oh yeah. But, What if we don't have to make that mean anything about ourselves or or the positive one as well, right? Because that one we go and then our ego can take that and go, look, I'm the greatest person in the world because people think this or, you know, that's one of the dangers, I think, of our social media world that we get so obsessed with. How many likes do I have? How many shares do I have? How many downloads do I have? And that's all well and good to like track your business and to see how things are going. If you happen to have a business that's focused on the Internet to some degree. But that can be really dangerous territory when it comes to our ego.
0: Oh, yeah, no doubt. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, the, one of the things you brought, brought up is, is sort of learning to separate ourselves from our ego. Uh, easier said than done sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I mean, are, are there practices that we can cultivate to, to keep doing that, I mean, on a day-to-day sort of practical basis. I mean, I've experienced the Amazon review you're talking about. I mean, I I remember the first time I got a two-star review. I mean, for me, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to put my energy into reading the one-star and two-star reviews. I'm like, what's the point? Um, They're entitled to opinion, but it doesn't do anything for me. It just pisses me off. and (laughs) You know, I was like, okay, this is a waste of time. Uh, You don't know, you know, it's funny. You could have 195-star reviews, and what do you notice? The two, two two-star reviews. Of course, of course i 'd love to talk uh, you know a, a bit more about separating ego from ourselves and, and maybe what we do you know, how we can take self compassion uh, to really make that happen
2: yeah well, I, in terms of practices, I would say i mean the, the ones for me and, and some of them look they 're simple but they 're not always easy it 's like you know my meditation practice is one of the most important things in my life, and one of the big breakthroughs I had a few years ago for myself around meditating. This is actually when I first started working with Eleanor. She was teaching me some meditations in our sessions, and she would say, you know, I'd write these notes, and she's like, here's some sort of guided visualization practices you can do. And I, and I said to her, you know, I have a hard time with these. I've been trying off and on for years. I meditate, and then I don't, and then sometimes I'm not. And, and she said this thing to me. She said, well, what's the most comfortable way, easiest way for you to meditate? I said, well, it's actually laying down. In bed, like in the morning, right? When I, I wake up, I go to the bathroom, come back. I'd love to meditate that way, but that always feels like cheating. That doesn't feel like real meditation, right? And she said, Where'd you make that up? And I see, I mean I can just meditate like laying in my bed in the mornings so If you want to, it's up to you. It's your life, right? Do it how you want to do it. For the last two and a half, going on three years, that's how I've been meditating. And it's I love it now and it was that little simple shift for me personally cuz i'd wasted a lot of time and energy for literally like 15 years judging myself for not meditating the right way not knowing what i was doing it didn't feel you know i mean i would go in and out of it so just again make it work for you but so meditation practice for me helps me get more in touch with Me, not me like the ego me, but like something much bigger, something much deeper, something more universal about myself. I don't feel as attached to my physical reality when I meditate. For me, writing in my journal actually helps me process through things but get more in touch with something that's important. And I have a separate journal that's just a gratitude journal. So, as a practice, I write in my gratitude journal on a daily basis. Now, there are days I miss. I try not to be militant about it or get too hard on myself if I miss a day or two when I'm busy or I'm traveling. Mm -hmm. But those things, as well as we live somewhere in Marin County, a little north of San Francisco, where there's beautiful places to hike. and, And I've never been a real outdoorsy person. But just in the last year or two, I'm finding myself, when I get out in nature, when I walk and just take a little hike and there's a couple little trails near where I live, something changes inside of me. And so all of those things as practices for me, help me get more in touch with what I think is more important than the little monkey mind ego that's constantly running all the time. And again, each of us are different, but I'm always encouraging people that I coach and people that I talk to and people that I work with, like come up with a couple of core practices for yourself and they may change over time, but what gets you more in touch with like what's real as opposed to a lot of the ego obsessions that a lot of us have. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So, you know, I want to start wrapping things up here uh, because I know we're getting close to about an hour. There's one last piece of this that, that really sort of intrigues me. You know, we were talking a little bit earlier about our failures and our setbacks and the things that are are really troubling uh, for us, especially when, things don't go the way we want them to as people who are achievement-oriented, uh, as yep. people who just, you know... I think we, most most of us have a very empowered view of our lives that we can control certain things, which there are a lot of things we don't control. Right. Um, I mean, how do you bring compassion uh, to the things in your past that have troubled
2: you? Well, I mean, I think the first piece is, you know, it's that recognize, acknowledge, forgive, and change piece. But the forgiveness piece, I think, is really important. And I think you know look having a sense of compassion and and forgiveness and they're different but they're but they're sort of overlap and touch on one another is is think of it sometimes it's easier i think initially to think of someone or something outside of yourself most of us have the experience of being able to be compassionate and forgiving towards Children, or towards animals, or towards, you know, just think of someone, imagine seeing someone in an airport or someone having a hard time. There are times when it's just very natural for us to show up in a very compassionate, empathetic, and forgiving way. Now, we don't often have that experience or have as much experience of doing that towards ourselves. But one of the things that I actually really like to do myself. And one of the sort of practices in my own meditation practice specifically is I will go back meditatively, if you will, and have conversations with younger versions of myself. Because I believe that, look, that child that lives inside of us isn't like in the past, like back in, you know, I was born in 1974. It's not like, oh, I was five in 1979, and I was. But I actually think that five-year-old, he's still alive in me sometimes. And there are times I can feel it. Oh, man. I feel like I'm five, or I feel like I'm 15, or I feel like I'm 25. And in those moments, I actually believe that five-year-old or that 15-year-old, that 25-year-old is sort of taking the keys to the bus of my life, and he's driving, and it's dangerous for all of us. So at some level, as corny as it may sound, and for some people this may really resonate, for others this might seem kind of odd, but can you go back, and if you're holding on to something from the past that you're having a hard time letting go of, a regret that you have, a mistake that you made, something you wish you would have done differently. Imagine, again, being sort of the wisest, most aware, enlightened version of yourself, talking to that younger version of yourself, even if it's only six months or a year ago, and with compassion. Because usually the intention or the motivation behind the mistake that we made or the thing that we, you know, wish we would have done differently or whatever, we've you know, and there's real impact to some of the stuff that we've done. But can we, can we release that? Can we forgive ourselves for that? And even if we're not willing to, a lot of times when I do forgiveness processes in workshops that I leave, lead, I will say, Can you declare a certain amount of forgiveness for this? And if not, can you at least declare a willingness? I'm willing to forgive myself for this, even if it's hard to let go of, because that's the first step is just the willingness. Even if you don't know how how am I going to let this go? How am I going to release the anger and the judgment and the frustration I have towards myself about this thing? Well, at least just start with a willingness. Mm -hmm. But if you're willing to go all the way there, just say it. Write it down. Ask for whatever you believe in, whatever your spiritual orientation is. Even if you don't have one at all, ask for some, some power outside of yourself to help you forgive yourself. I often do that before I go to bed at night. I will, I will make sort of requests or in, you know, have intentions. I want to let go of this. I want to work through that and allow that whatever happens mirac- magically and miraculously during the sleeping time, that something will get worked out that I can't understand with my conscious mind. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, hey, Mike, this
0: has been really, really, really insightful. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, once I heard your story, I knew I wanted to have you here because I thought <laughs> that this was a really important subject uh, that really does impact our, our work and our lives in so many ways as creative people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me
0: on. It's an honor. Yeah. So I, I want to close with one final question. And uh this is something we close all our interviews with. You know, having been through the world and, and sort of navigated it the way you have and having your life experiences, what is it that you think makes somebody or something unmistakable?
2: Oh I think um I think what makes someone unmistakable is authenticity. It's just there's a sense and it's not authenticity like the word it's not authenticity like the concept. It's like authenticity, like the real McCoy. Like you can tell, you can feel it. It's visceral. I don't even have to understand. Someone could speak a different language, have a different skill, be interested in stuff that doesn't even make sense to me. But there's an unmistakable quality that's visceral, that's palpable when you're around someone or something that has that real sense of authenticity. And it's it's a visceral experience. It's a in the moment experience and it can't be replicated. It can't be, um, copied because it, 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 there, there's something unique about it that, that just, you can feel it. Awesome.
0: Well, Mike, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and, uh, share some of your insights with our listeners here at the unmistakable creative. This has been really phenomenal. Thanks, man. And, uh, for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. You've been listening to the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. Visit our website at unmistakablecreative.com and get access to over 400 interviews in our archives.
5: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,